You are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. I am a cinema enthusiast of all genres, here to discuss with you one film every episode. The good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique. No matter when this film was released, there's a good possibility I will be revealing spoilers about the plot, or even possibly the ending. So just be warned. Jackie Brown, which came out in 1997. It was directed by Quentin Tarantino. It stars Pam Greer, Samuel L. Jackson, Robert Forster, Robert De Niro, Bridget Fonda, Michael Keaton, Michael Bowen, Lisa Gay Hamilton, Tom Tiny Lister Jr., and Chris Tucker. The genre would be romantic crime drama. If you're going to come in on this thing with me, you got to be prepared to go all the way. From the novel by Elmore Leonard, the new film by Quentin Tarantino. If you have the chance to walk off with a half million dollars, would you take it? Yeah. The game is on. Let him get the money and then just take it from him. But who's playing who? Are you going to set him up? Yeah. Pam Greer, Samuel L. Jackson, Robert Forster, Bridget Fonda, Michael Keaton, and Robert De Niro. Is she dead? I, 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 yes or no, is she dead? Pretty much. Jackie Brown. AK-47, when you absolutely, positively got to kill every mother in the room, except no substitutes. Nothing gets between me and my AK. <laughs> Rated R. Now, I can remember first seeing this in theaters back in 1997 and being super pumped and leaving roughly two and a half hours later feeling somewhat disappointed. This was, after all, Quentin Tarantino's long-awaited, well, three years to be fair, follow-up to the seminal Pulp Fiction, which came out in 1994. How do you follow up an earth-shattering classic like that movie? I'm trying real hard to be the shepherd. Well, if you're Tarantino, obviously you don't even attempt to duplicate Pulp Fiction. But from my standpoint at the time, that's exactly why I was disappointed. Yes, this film had a stacked cast. Samuel L. Jackson returning, a similar L.A. sprawl setting, and an overall blaxploitation vibe like Pulp Fiction. But that's where the similarities ended. With his adaptation of Elmore Leonard's Rum Punch, QT was telling a much quieter and more deliberate story focusing mainly on two middle-aged lost souls straddling opposite sides of the law who joined forces to perpetrate a scam on both the law and criminals whom they're beholden to, and they eventually fall in love. Of course, that plot description is really oversimplifying things. This was still, on the surface, a twisty crime drama slash heist movie involving about a dozen different characters with double crosses, numerous scenes of characters ingesting marijuana, a slightly fractured narrative, several sudden murders, and copious utterances of the N-word by certain characters, the latter of which was a cause for controversy upon its release. But as far as I'm concerned, this is first and foremost a love story between Pam Greer's titular Jackie Brown and Robert Forster's Max Cherry. This likely played a part in why I was so disappointed with it not being Pulp Fiction Redux back in 97, and also a big reason for why I now adore this film. Of course, it helps that there are several standout performances and sequences which are peripheral to that love story, including Michael Keaton's jittery Ray Nicolette having a visual argument with himself inside an interrogation room with Jackie. Okay. You've no idea 
$50,000. You're clueless about the money, right? You have no idea what the 50 grand is. I have no idea. None. None. You have no idea. You no. don't know. It could have gone here. Could have no, gone here. I don't, don't know. I know nothing. Not a clue. Not I don't idea. have an idea not, where the motherfucking money is. Not even a little idea, not maybe. Even, not even a little tiny motherfucking idea. Just a polygraph on that. Yeah, if a motherfucking make you happy. Yeah, put it right there. I'll do it. Bridget Fonda's Melanie cartoonishly taunting De Niro's Louis while they are looking for the van in the parking lot late in the movie. Hey, when you robbed banks, did you have to look for your car then, too? No wonder you went to jail. Is it this aisle, Louis? Is it? Louis? Louis? The Cockatoo Inn, among several real-life L.A. locations featured in this movie, which is that stylish old-school medieval-themed bar that Jackie invites Ordell for one last run-through meeting in the movie. Jackie Jack. Hey. Damn. I'm going to have to remember this place. It's all right. About two minutes from your crib, ten minutes from the gig. What's your drink, brother? Uh, Let me get a screwdriver home. How you doing? Oh, I'm fine. Yes, you are. The looming presence of Tom Tiny Lister Jr.'s Winston at Ray's Bail Bonds for most of the movie. Who's that big Mandingo-looking nigga you got up there on that picture with you? That's Winston. He works here. Damn. He's a big one, ain't he? Y'all tight? Yeah. But you was boss, though, right? Yeah. That was your idea to take that picture, too, wasn't it? Ordell and Beaumonts, played by Chris Tucker, their banter before Ordell makes him hide in his trunk. I can't believe you do me like this. Do you like what, man? I just ain't climbing in no goddamn dirty ass trunk, man. I got a problem with small places. No, well, I got a problem with spending ten thousand dollars on ungrateful peanut head niggas to get them out of jail. But I did it. And how small was that jail cell, motherfucker? Look, man, I know I owe you. You got to bring all if this. If you up. owe me, then get your ass in this trunk. Man, I want to help you, but I won't be locked in no goddamn trunk or no car. Jackie looking tensely in the mirror for just a few seconds in that changing room just before the climactic bag exchange. Of course, I cannot forget the lovelorn look on Ray's face whenever he listens to Didn't I from the Delphonics. The Delphonics. It's nice. Mm-hmm. And that last one brings me to two of this film's core strengths. The chemistry between Greer and Forster, and just a banger soundtrack. Honestly, this might be Tarantino's most impressive collection of needle drops for any of his movies, which is very high praise. Of course, Pam Greer gives a great three-dimensional performance, which she undoubtedly deserves some Oscar attention for. Well, I've flown over 7 million miles and I've been waiting on people for 20 years. And after my bus, the best job I could get was with Cabo Air, which is the worst job you could get in this industry. You know, I make 16000 a year plus retirement benefits that ain't worth a damn. And with this arrest hanging over my head, Max, I'm scared. And if I lose this job, I gotta start all over again and I ain't got nothing to start over with. I'll be stuck with whatever I can get. And that shit is more scary than Ordell. 
as does Samuel L. Jackson, who is treading some familiar territory here with much of the rapid-fire bluster that he brought to Pulp Fiction playing Jules. But he also has several effective quieter moments, especially that last exchange with Forster in the car towards the end when they're about to meet Jackie. It's truly impressive layered acting on Jackson's part, as while Ordell is leveling these effective threats to Max, you can just tell from his eyes that Ordell feels the walls closing in on him and is genuinely scared. Listen, I go walking in there, and that nigga Winston or anybody else is in there, and you the first motherfucker get shot, you understand me? Yeah. That ain't nothing you want to tell me before we get out this car, is that? Nope. Last chance, motherfucker, you shut. Sadly, neither Jackson nor Greer received Oscar attention, though Forster deservedly received an Oscar nomination for what was very much considered a true comeback role for him at the time, after literally decades of B-movie parts, including the lead terrorist in the Delta Force. Yeah, I just love that movie. I gotta review it one of these days. Robert Forster's laconic delivery and aged features just proved to be an effective contrast to Greer, and I just kind of love how Tarantino gives these two characters ample time to just get to know each other in depth, but almost all organically in service of the overall story. On the surface, these two first seem like a very mismatched pair, but through the course of the story, it works better and better. I mean, regarding Pam Greer, she looks as beautiful as she did 20 years prior in 70s classics like Foxy Brown. But there are just enough moments when you can see how decades of her character being a flight attendant slash courier has worn her down. She even calls attention to it in one key moment after Ray first picks her up. And she commiserates about going to a more dimly lit bar to hide the fact that she looks like she spent two nights in jail. And Ray brushes her off, just saying that she looks great. Just kind of a sweet, touching moment. And that driving story of the movie itself? Well, it all really comes down to a bag exchange involving more than $500,000 in gun-running earnings brought in from Mexico. But that's really just a MacGuffin designed to bring all of our characters together in the third act. The last 45 minutes pretty much focus on said bag exchange from three different points of view. And not only is it an acting showcase for the stacked cast, but it is masterfully edited by the late, great Sally Menke, who would prove to be one of Tarantino's strongest collaborators. Considering that Jackie Brown, the film, actually runs just over 150 minutes, this story just moves, even though much of it is just focused on characters sitting around and talking, which is often when Tarantino is really at his best. Oh, I, I guess I got a little sensitive about my hair a few years ago. It started falling out, so, you know, I did something about it. How'd you feel about that? I feel fine with it. Otherwise, I wouldn't have done it. I did it to feel better about myself, and, you know, I do. Look in the mirror. Looks like me. Yeah, but it's different for men. You know, I can't really feel too sorry for you in this department. I bet that except for possibly an afro, you look exactly the way you did at 29. Well. And that brings us to the categories. Now I'm going to combine two of these categories. The best needle drop, which is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film. And the trailer moment, which is the scene or moment that best describes this movie. It's honestly very difficult to separate these two categories because they are so well integrated. Literally every standout scene in this movie has a great needle drop to accompany it. And like I already said, this very well might be the best soundtrack for a Tarantino movie. And there are just so many great song choices to choose from, most of them from the 60s and 70s. Across 110th Street from Bobby Womack is a true standout, as we hear it twice, as a bookend during both the opening credits and the closing shot of the movie. First, we hear it play over what I would consider one of the best opening credit sequences ever. 
As the credits start to kick in, we have a tracking shot following alongside Pam Greer as she's moving down an electric walkway at an airport. This is just a very memorable introduction to our title character as we see Jackie in her full glory, wearing her bright blue flight attendant suit heading to work. The song is a true gem with real emotion behind it, and it was first released in 1972 as the title track for the soundtrack of a crime drama starring Yafit Kodo and Anthony Quinn, named, you guessed it, Across 110th Street. Really good movie, too. And believe it or not, Tarantino was not only borrowing a song from the soundtrack of another movie, but this whole opening credit sequence is a clear visual homage to the opening credit sequence of The Graduate. The whole scene is basically a prime example of what has always made Tarantino, Tarantino. As a filmmaker, he's never shy about borrowing from others, but he always makes the results on screen truly his own. Even better, Across 110th Street is then reprised for that stirring last shot of Jackie driving away from Max's bail bonds in a new car and with the 500k. It's both a sad and triumphant moment. She's alone, looking right into the camera, mouthing the chorus of the song, and starting to tear up. It's a fantastic, bittersweet ending. And speaking of callbacks, what might actually be my personal favorite among the needle drops, and might even be the trailer moment, is a short sequence which kicks off the triple point of view climax at the Del Amo Mall about 100 minutes in. It all starts with Jackie once again wearing her flight attendant uniform with the camera following her to the side, just like that opening credits scene. Only this time, she's walking much more confidently and she feels more in control. And the song we hear playing is the bouncy 1979 disco jam Street Life from Randy Crawford as we see Jackie just confidently strutting her way into the mall with her bag. It's a pretty triumphant moment which Tarantino frames perfectly with just the right music. The next category would be Wasted Talent, 
This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. And simply put, there is no wasted talent in this movie. Everyone, every actor is utilized perfectly. Even the offbeat use of character actors like Lisa Gay Hamilton, Sid Haig, and Michael Bowen. Which brings me to the final category, which would be the MVP, the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. Simply put, Tarantino does it again. His direction is confident, his writing is crisp, and I even have to give him props for drawing such a uniquely subdued performance from De Niro here, which I honestly did not appreciate on first viewing. The best filmmakers can always surprise you that way. And this could very well be peak Tarantino, as I don't think he has written nor directed anything this good since then. Even though Kill Bill Volume 2, Inglorious Bastards, and the first 90 minutes of Django Unchained come pretty close. There's a lot of restraint here on Tarantino's part, as the emotional resolution of this story would just not have worked nearly as well if it had been preceded by the sort of blood-soaked climax which has been featured in every, and I mean every, post-2000 film of his. It all comes down to focusing on a very human connection forged amongst dangerous circumstances. And we see in their last scene together at Max's bail bonds that it's this very connection between Jackie and Max which scares them more than any kind of violent danger that they have countered up until that point. Yep, next to the dizzying humanist ride of Pulp Fiction, this is definitely Tarantino's most mature film overall. I didn't use you, Max. I didn't say you did. And I never lied to you. I know that. We're partners. I'm 56 years old. I can't blame anybody for anything I do. Where are you going? Spain. Madrid or Barcelona? Mm, Madrid first. Have you been there? I hear they don't eat dinner until midnight. You want to go? Thanks, but uh, you have a good time. You sure I can't twist your arm? for delivering another masterpiece just within five years of two previous films, which were also masterpieces, Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs, Quentin Tarantino is the MVP. My rating for Jackie Brown would be five stars out of five. Jackie Brown is the textbook definition of a slow burn, viewed by many, myself included, as a disappointment when it first came out, resulting in middling reviews and box office. For several years after its release, it was looked upon dismissively as lesser Tarantino. And yet over the decades, its reputation has just grown and grown as a career high point for many involved, including much of its cast. Happy 25th anniversary to one of the best films of the 1990s. And if you're looking to watch Jackie Brown, it's currently available to rent or buy on all major streaming platforms. And that ends another Delphonic review. Special shout out to my lovely wife, Marlene Gershon, for producing this podcast and to my lovely daughter, Ella Gershon, for assisting in the editing. Please like, subscribe and share the Living for the Cinema podcast and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. You can find it all